Hi, good morning, church. My name is Danielle Couch, and I am a covenant partner here, and I have the honor of reading the scripture passage. This morning, we continue our Advent series as we prepare our hearts for celebrating the first coming of King Jesus, knowing Christ will come again. Today's familiar passage reminds us of the powerful truth of who God is and what he has done for us. We need this revelation of God. He is sovereign, his providence is working all things according to his purposes, and he has specific priorities for those who are welcomed into his family. And now if you could all stand with me today as we read our passage, which is Luke chapter two, verses one through seven. Hear the word of the Lord. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there is no place for them in the inn. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. Please be seated. If you have your Bibles, please keep them open this morning as we're going to be looking in this very familiar text. Um, what a joy it is to celebrate our family, uh, to baptize new children as we celebrate our opportunity to disciple children. And I do hope you all join us next Sunday for the drive through nativity. Hope it's a little warmer than it is this week for the sake of our uh, actors of the play. Oh, look, here's the deal. Today, I really hope that we resist the temptation, the temptation for things that are familiar to lead us to a place of, of complacency. I am really burdened that we see the power of God's providence in our passage and that we discover the purposes that he has for his people. We're going to be looking at the heart of redemptive history. And as we study the word of the Lord, please join me in going to the Lord of the word in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your revelation of who you are and what you have accomplished. We ask, Lord, that you would be pleased to speak to us by the power of your spirit. We long, Lord, to not just be inspired, but truly transformed. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to walk through this passage and see three points. They're all going to be on your screen up there. Uh, but first thing that we want to do is just establish the stage. Uh, Luke is very intentional in his presentation. that There is a global stage that the nativity is played upon. Uh, in fact, you know, globalization, it's not a new thing. I mean, we, we, we celebrate it and study it in, in our economics and whatnot, but empires have long been in the business of trying to uh, unite, centralize their power, unite the globe uh, to increase their influence, right? Uh, Luke wants Theophilus, the, the intended author, uh, recipient of the gospel, you read that in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 1, but also all of his readers 
to see the global stage that this is played out on, look at the passage beginning of verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Uh, the decree, it came from the most powerful person, the most powerful leader in the most powerful empire of the day. And it was that all the world would come. The power of Rome, the power of Caesar, ordering all of the people who were known at the time. A powerful government seeking more resources, uh, trying to get more power by numbering their citizens so that they could increase their taxation. As Americans, we are a little bit allergic to taxation without representation, right? We don't like the idea of this autonomous central power commanding all the world so they can get more from us. And even as Texans, we're probably even more allergic than the rest of our country to government overreach, certain mandates that come down like a census. And that's probably highlighted more during 2020 than it has been in past years. But the truth is that when we understand the sovereignty of God and his invisible hand of providence that is ordering all of creation, there is no one that is truly autonomous as we like to believe. The point of this is not government power. It's not government overreach. The point of this is not civil liberty. The point is that we have a power who is more powerful than any person or any politics or party, any power of this world. The point is that this global stage is set to reveal the power of the true king. Empires have always dotted redemptive history. Since the beginning, God's people were in the empire of Egypt. They went to the land of Canaan. Once they were established there, God used the empire of Assyria to take the northern kingdom. He used the empire of Babylon to overcome Assyria and take the southern kingdom. He used the empire of Persia to overcome the empire of Babylon so that people could return and restore the temple in the, in the city of Jerusalem. The second temple was built and now we see the empire of Rome. In every case, in every place in history, God has not highlighted the political power of any empire to its own end, but to a greater end to demonstrate his total power over what is perceived to be the most powerful thing in this world. God is the ultimate superpower. And the church may need to be let down by those things, you agree, don't you, Spencer? That's what I'm talking about. We might need to be ultimately let down by the powers and the people and the parties that we consider to be preeminent so that our faith in the true superpower can increase. But just to help look at this passage from another perspective, I wanna do it in the larger context of the story. How many of us have friends or family members that when you're watching a movie or when you're watching a TV show, they sit down and they start asking way too many questions? Do you have that person? Oh, how did this person get here? What are they doing? Why would they do that? It gets so annoying. Okay? 
Now, last week we started and ended this large scriptural revelation of God's redemptive history. We looked at the garden and the promised seed and, 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 the, and the new heavens and the new earth where every tribe, tongue, and nation are worshiping the lion of Judah, the lamb who was slain for our sins. Those are the bookends and, and Callan and I have been very encouraged by the response from last week. We do hope that everything that we do really forms your faith. To remind you, we're not in the business of just coming to worship because it's some seasonal activity or it's sentimental. We do it because we want to be transformed more and more into the likeness of our King who has saved us. This is designed to be a springboard to shape you. And as we look at the story, I want you to imagine uh, someone, that person, your friend or family member who asks all the questions. And some of you looked at people sitting next to you and said, that's you. Imagine their question, why are, are Mary and Joseph, why are they leaving Nazareth? And why are they going to Bethlehem? Well, if you just focus on this scene, you're tempted to say, well, there was a census. Typical government overreach, typical power grab. They're just demanding their citizens to do everything. In our short-sightedness, we might see this. But anyone who's seen the whole story is going to offer a corrective. You see, God made a promise and he made a promise that the seed of the woman Eve would stomp the head of the serpent. And throughout all the Old Testament, that promise has been clarified and clarified and clarified. So much so that in Micah chapter 5 verse 2, yes, it was four centuries before this happened. But God made a promise that that seed would be born and come from Bethlehem. They are not responding to a census order from a senseless emperor whose only intent is to grow his own power. This is an invisible hand of providence. Imagine this, this is true. That God's invisible hand moved the heart of an emperor to move the people of an empire so that two teenagers, one of them pregnant, would move from Nazareth to Bethlehem so God can prove that he is faithful to his promises. That's unbelievable. The global stage is designed to engage your heart. And we have at least two takeaways from this. One, God is ordering all of life and all of history for his purposes so that he can keep his promises. You believe that? It's true. Secondly, God is concerned with his glory among the whole globe. His ultimate picture is that every power, every ruler, every authority, every dominion, every person in heaven and on earth bow their knee to King Jesus. And this is why the ancient prophecies foretell a day when the glory of God will cover the earth as the water covers the sea, Habakkuk 2.14. And this is why King Jesus commands his church to go to all the world and make disciples every neighbor, every neighborhood, and every nation. God's glory will be proclaimed, and we participate in this story. The global stage, though, helps us to see the second point, that, that God's providence is working on this global stage. And in the end of the Heidelberg Catechism, the last part of it, I, I love the line. It says, everything comes not by chance or by luck. Nothing comes but by his fatherly hand. God is sovereign. And we see this in the registration. And God, look, first, all of us, we struggle with not being in total control. If you're like me, you like control. 
And to think that God, whom often we cannot see, is controlling everything, I don't know if I like that. But God gives us these little steps to help us to find security in his sovereignty and his shepherding care in everything. And he, we see it in the word registration. Now, if you look at your passage, it, it, we first encounter it, it's four times in seven verses. It's, it's a repeated word, it's important. In verse one, all the world should go to be registered. And if you imagine this passage like a funnel, it'll help you, all right? So the empire, all of the world is the top part of the funnel. And then in chapter two, the name that all of us had trouble saying, Quirinius, Quirinius, Quirinius. I mean, aren't you glad that that's not your name, right? That's a tough name. I'm just gonna, it's in chapter verse two, you can look at it. If it is your name, I apologize. We'll talk later. I don't mean to mock names. I have a really funny story about somebody knocking, mocking my name in a talk. Um, we're not going to do that. It was unintentional. I could share that with you right now, but we have to stay with the text. It just happens. I don't mean it in any way. If that's your name, Quinarius, the governor, the registration is on a global platform and the funnel comes in because he has to implement it in his area of Syria and then verse three, the funnel closes and focuses more on Bethlehem. That Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem. And then finally in verse five, it focuses on the family, Mary and Joseph, who were with child that had gone to be registered because Joseph was of the lineage. The sovereignty of God, his providence in God's graciousness is walked down. We get so intimidated to think about the infinite rule of God, but in his grace, he brings it down to a focus. Not the whole world, but this child, this promised child who was born to a teenage girl in Bethlehem, a virgin that would give birth. And the good news was in verse 10, for all people, because in verse 11, he is the Lord and savior of all the world in verse 14 of this chapter, that this is joy for all the earth. But the focus of God's providence in his hand is the child, Jesus. And this is why it's, understand, why it's important for us to understand the centrality of Christ in all of redemptive history. This promised child is the one we read about in Genesis 3.15 last week. He is the promised seed. He is the one who we see in Revelation as every tribe, tongue, and nation are worshiping around him. He is the one in Genesis 49.10 who is in the loins of Judah, the lion of Judah, who will be worshiped as worthy. He is the one that John calls in the Gospel of John in history, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He's the lamb who was slain, but he's the ultimate Passover lamb that we read about in Exodus chapter 12. He is our faithful high priest. He's the one we read about in Hebrews chapter 7 to 10. The one who has offered a sacrifice that is sufficient for all time. The one that Leviticus anticipates. In fact, in Leviticus 16, he is the scapegoat that has removed the sins of his people, the Lamb of God. And Hebrews 10, 14 says that he, by one single sacrifice, has made perfect for all time those who believe and are being sanctified. 
the sacrifice that Numbers anticipates. Deuteronomy says in chapter 18 that there would be a prophet who is greater than Moses. This is Jesus, our prophet, priest, and king. Joshua was the one who led God's people into the land of Canaan, the promised land. But Jesus is Joshua. He's the greater Joshua who leads us not from the wilderness of the ancient Near East into the land that's promised flowing with milk and honey, but he leads us from the wilderness of our sin and the power and principalities of this world into the promised lands of his blessing. He is Joshua, Yeshua, the one who saves. He's the judge, the ultimate judge. The judges were raised up in the Old Testament to to give rescue and relief and rest. He's the ultimate judge that provides us rest. He is, in fact, David, greater son. We read about Ruth connecting with Boaz through the suffering of their day and having a child named Obed. And Obed gave birth to Jesse and Jesse gave birth to David. Jesus is Ruth and Boaz's greater offspring. He's the fullness of the covenant promise that was made to David in 1 Samuel chapter 16 when he was anointed that there would be no one, one of his children that could remove this eternal king from the throne. Jesus, this child, is the center He's the Prince of Peace, the wonderful counselor that Isaiah talks about in chapter nine. He's Emmanuel, God with us, promised in Isaiah seven. He is the root, the branch that comes from David's stump that Jeremiah talks about. He is the son of man that will return on the clouds and every tribe, every ruler, every tongue, every knee will bow, Daniel chapter seven. He is God made flesh. He is Yahweh, the great I am that came on the scene. It's all about this child. And God wants you to see his providence and free you from your fear of perceived geopolitical uncertainty and free you for joy and for peace. Listen, the focus is not what you see. It's not what you watch. It's not what you scroll on your phone. It's not what you hear or fear or feel. This is plain revelation. Listen, this is not a conspiracy theory. There is a king who cannot have his authority overturned, overrun, or recalled. We have a king. His name is Jesus. And so I want to give you three points of application. Number one, will you take a fast? Fast from all of the things that focus you on the powers of this world. Take a fast, turn them off. Stop reading them. Get your head and your eyes and your heart out of the script that this world wants you to buy into. And look at the script of this nativity reality that's on this global stage. And two, feast on the faithfulness of God. He's working all things according to the, his power and his faithful promises. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. All of God's promises are yes in Christ. Spend this Christmas feasting on God's faithfulness. Fast from all the things that are going to feed your fear and feast on the faithfulness of this Christ child. And third, no matter where you are, take comfort Sometimes we think God's just too busy to care about me and my burdens. 
Um, hello. He moved an emperor and an empire so that he could care for two teenagers. One of them was pregnant. God will not overlook you. He's not too busy for you. He cares about you. The third thing that we see as we look at the end of this in verse 7 are God's priorities for his global people. When we focus on Christ, the promise of this season, then his priorities will become our priorities. This is a phenomenal reality. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the end. Can you imagine that? No place for them. God's first priority is outsiders. Oh, how much of us long to be insiders, and if anybody could ever have been an insider, it would have been Jesus. But somehow he left heaven and became an outsider. He was born into the, this backwater community of Bethlehem in a backwater part of a Roman Empire of Judea. And he was born on the outside of everyone where everybody was staying. Think about this. Joseph was returning to where he grew up. No family would take him in. No parent would make provision. No relative would remove anything so that this couple could even have a spot on their floor. They wouldn't even give a sofa. No place of lodging would take them in. This is where Jesus came to. This was the home that Jesus made. We get so obsessed in, in having inside and outsider, us versus them language. It just doesn't exist in the church. Jesus became an outsider so that all who believe will become insiders. And that's true no matter what your nationality, what your race, what your ethnicity is, what your socioeconomic status is, where you come from or who you know. In Christ Jesus, we are all one. And we need to repent of this cultural insider-outsider mentality that we have inherited or been indoctrinated by our culture. Jesus became an outsider so that all of us who believe can become insiders and all who are in Christ are brothers and sisters in Christ, their family. There's no room for Jesus in the end. Well, the second thing we see is that she gave birth. Our priority is not just for outsiders, that we welcome people home. We love coming home, but we also welcome life. We love the life that is Christmas. We love the light that comes at Christmas. And here's, here, this is true. You know, if Mary had gotten rid of her baby, then Joseph wouldn't have had the shame, and I'm convinced that he would have had a place to stay. But the shame that came with this pregnancy out of wedlock, it led to all these casualties. What's interesting to me is that God communicates this birth of Jesus in a way that forces us to prioritize life and protecting life, all of life, giving dignity to life. This teenage girl who was surprised by pregnancy, her life was really important. She was carrying our majesty, King Jesus. And we know the dignity of life. If you read the whole story, you can look and see in chapter one, what's amazing is that the life that was in the womb of Elizabeth talked to, celebrated, and spoke to the life that was in the womb of Mary. Preborn life, celebrating life. God's word demands that we do this. 
we have a, a women's clinic in our Kingdom Restoration Lab right under the sanctuary over there. This week, we're open two days a week, and each day we had a woman come in surprised by pregnancy, seeing on our ultrasound machine her child for the first time, experiencing the love of our team that's down there that wants to see new life and hope in Christ's birth in their hearts. As God's people, we have to have the priority of life in all of life. And if there's a secret in your life that you need to surrender, then the good news is that the, the hope of, of King Jesus is that there's only forgiveness and grace, mercy and love to begin again in him. I'm going to tell you this. You, you want to know how much of a priority it is, in my opinion, for the church to stand for life? Let me draw a cultural parallel. The Mandalorian. <laughs> that guy's whole mission is to protect what? Baby Yoda. <laughs> More than the Mandalorian is called to protect baby Yoda, the church is called to protect life and to give dignity in all of life to all people. Finally, the last thing we see is a priority of God's people. She wrapped him in swaddling clothes. We see the importance of family. Family is something that we've already celebrated in our service. We want to feed and shape your family. This is why our family ministry team has come up with a phenomenal Advent devotional book. And this is why we want to resource families here so that we can flourish in our faith. This is why we hope all of us come to the nativity next week, three o'clock in our parking lot. You can stay in your cars. But family is the fabric of God's design for creation. When God created the world, he put Adam and Eve and their offspring, their family, right at the center. Society doesn't make sense without a flourishing family. And Jesus, in a remarkable way, came into this world where a mother had to birth him and care for him, and a father had to provide for him, and a father had to help teach him. It's amazing that Jesus came in the context of family, even in contrast to a self-righteous, hard-hearted family that would not make room for them. You see, Jesus came to redeem family so that where there's fracturing and surviving, that in Christ, families, every family, can find a renewed thriving and a renewed flourishing. And here's the rea reality, that when the family of God celebrates the flourishing of families, then our church will flourish and our city will flourish because family is the fabric of God's design. It's the centerpiece of our society. In our society goes the direction of our families. And what's amazing is that God invites us into the climax of redemptive history through the lens of interpretation of family. The father so loved the world that he gave his only son to welcome us, the climax of his love, as co-heirs of the kingdom and in fact, Christmas is the catalyst of the love that is shown by the Holy Spirit. It's really amazing. It's amazing when you read chapter one that Elizabeth, who was barren, it says the power of God and the person of the Holy Spirit came and gave her life. In Mary, when she was a virgin, how in the world is she gonna have a baby as a virgin? The power of the Most High God, the person of the Holy Spirit came to give her life. And it's the Holy Spirit that births new life, that births us into the family of God. 
And there is always room in God's family for those who believe. So those are the three things, the global stage, the the providence of God on that global stage, and then the priorities of God's people, outsiders, life, and family. This is the freedom and the opportunity that we have as God's people to receive the fullness of his promises. Will you pray with me? Lord, we thank you for surprise truths of this season. And as we study your word, we just pray for forgiveness. Collectively, Lord, we repent. We, were, we repent for putting too much of our heart on hopes of this world, powers and people and parties. Lord, we confess that we have too much trusted them. We repent. We turn back to you in the true power of this world. God, you're the ultimate superpower. Lord, we confess that we have not believed your grace and your love, the truth and the power of the person of Jesus. And we ask that you'd revive us with your spirit. And Lord, we repent. We repent as your people for not living your priorities in this place from our hearts. We haven't welcomed the stranger. We haven't welcomed the poor and the broken, the destitute and people who don't look like us. Lord, we haven't prioritized life like we should. And Lord, we haven't celebrated family as you do and you have designed. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would work in us the reality of forgiveness that we have through you. And we pray, Father, that this Christmas season, oh Lord, we do not want to just be inspired. We truly want to be transformed. Would you have your way with us? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.